Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. For more than half an hour, 38 respectable, law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. Twice, the sound of their voices and the sudden glow of their bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off. Each time he returned, out and stabbed her again. Not one person telephoned the police during the assault. One witness called after the woman was dead. This was part of an extensive front-page story the New York Times ran in March 1964. Fake news. Tomorrow is Friday the 13th. Bob, you feel some kind of way about that? I hate Friday the 13th. I'm not superstitious about a lot of things, about most things, but I got a couple things. One is if I'm on the interstate and there's a truck in front of me hauling logs, I'm going around it. I, that's, yeah. Our I, generation, we've seen Final Destination. We yeah. know. And the other thing is Friday the 13th, the number 13 all around, but Friday the 13th in particular, my ex-wife, some of our listeners may know her. She's Satan's oldest daughter was born on Friday the 13th, and that was a lucky day for her, and immediately I got the opposite luck out of it. So that is not not a good day for me. Well, we're talking about a crime that happened on another Friday the 13th. Not her birthday, but uh, today we're talking about the murder of Catherine Susan Genovese, who went by the nickname Kitty. She was only 28 years old when she was brutally murdered in Queens, New York. Kitty was born on July 7, 1935, to Vincent and Rachel Genovese. She was the oldest of five children and a graduate of Prospect Heights High School, where she was remembered as a very good student. She was voted class cut-up in her senior year. I, I think that means, like, class clown. Bob, you're a, a lot closer to the 50s lingo than I am. Um, is that what that means? Well, I mean, yeah, she's like 40 years older than I am, or so, but still, uh, yeah, cut-up is a clown. Yeah, you're closer. Now, after Kitty graduated high school, her mother Rachel witnessed a murder, and her family decided it was time to move out of the city. They moved to New Canaan, Connecticut, which is about 45 miles away. Yeah, okay, 45 miles away, which means, what, it took them like four hours each way to get to work? No, thank you. That sounds about right. As is often the case, the young Kitty did not want to trade what the city had to offer for the slower, less exciting Connecticut suburb. When her family moved, she stayed behind. She worked as a secretary for an insurance company during the day and worked nights as a bartender, then eventually the manager at Ev's 11th Hour, a bar in the Hollis neighborhood of Queens, which prompted her to move to that area. A decade later, Kitty met a woman named Mary Ann Zalanko in a Greenwich Village nightclub. They hit it off and frequented the folk music scene, regularly going to Gertie's Folk Music in Greenwich Village. They moved into a second-floor apartment together in Kew Gardens, another area in Queens, that was generally considered a peaceful, safe area to live at that time. You know, the only difference between those generally safe places to live or the safe neighborhoods or the safe towns, the only difference between those and the unsafe towns is whether anybody's surprised when you get murdered. Mm. And so in this case, uh, Kitty would become an exception to that generalization on a cold winter night in March of 1964. Around 2 a.m. on Friday the 13th, 1964, Winston Mosley got out of his bed and quietly left his house to prowl the city for a woman to murder. The New York Times said Mosley seemed an unlikely serial killer, soft-spoken, intelligent, with no criminal record, a married father of two who owned his home in South Ozone Park, Queens, and operated business machines in Mount Vernon, New York. Apparently, his wife was a nurse who occasionally had to work nights, allowing him the opportunity to abandon his sleeping children and feed a devious desire to control and inflict pain upon others, particularly women. And we'll circle back to that in a minute. 
Roughly an hour after Mosley left his house looking for a victim, he attacked Kitty Genovese with a knife just a block from her apartment. Now, let me stop here for a second. If you've been thinking the name Kitty Genovese rings a bell, and not necessarily in the true crime realm, you're right. This case inspired an entire field of research in psychology. In 1968, researchers John Darley and Bib Latane published an article titled Bystander Intervention in Emergencies, Diffusion of Responsibility, and this was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. This case and bystander effect has been taught in general psychology courses, including the ones that I took in high school and college, ever since. The bystander effect, it's a real phenomenon, and it has been studied and recreated many, many times over. But this particular incident isn't a good or even a true example of the bystander effect. But let's get back to what happened to Kitty. Right. So it's around 3 a.m., Friday the 13th. Kitty's heading home from work in her red Fiat, which is pretty awesome, might I add. Mosley is parked in his white Chevy Corvair when he spots Kitty stopped at an intersection and decides he's going to follow her. She parked in a nearby railroad station parking lot close to her building. It was about 100 feet away from the door to her apartment, uh, which this is in an alleyway at the rear of the building. That's how she would access her, uh, her apartment. Mosley parked nearby at a corner bus stop on Austin Street. As Kitty walked toward her building, she could tell that there was a man following her. Rightfully concerned, she started to hurry toward the door, but Mosley grabbed her and stabbed Kitty twice in the back. She screamed, Oh my God, he stabbed me, help me. Hearing Kitty scream, a neighbor named Robert Moser yelled out of his window, Let that girl alone. Mosley was startled by the neighbor and ran off. Kitty was seriously injured, but somehow she managed to crawl to the rear of the apartment building and got inside. Mosley went to his car and drove away, but he wouldn't be deterred for long. After about 10 minutes, he returned. His face was blocked by a wide-brimmed hat as he went from the parking lot to the train station and then the apartment complex looking for Kitty to finish what he had started. Somehow, Kitty had made it to the back of the apartment building inside a hallway, but there was a locked door preventing her from going further inside to escape Mosley. Eventually, he found her, and she was barely conscious. Listen, y'all, this is about to get real. The details of the attacks are repulsive and include a disturbing sexual assault as explained by the bag of shit who murdered this woman. So here's your trigger warning. If you want to tap out now, we won't think any less of you. The following account of Mosley's crime comes directly from a post-conviction proceeding where he was challenging his conviction in federal court. It was written by the United States District Court for the Eastern District of New York in 1995. At his trial, Mosley took the stand in support of an insanity defense and confessed to killing Genovese. According to his testimony, he left his house in the early morning hours of Friday the 13th, March 1964, with a hunting knife for the purpose of finding a woman and killing her. At approximately 3 a.m., he spotted a red car driven by Genovese, which he followed for approximately 10 blocks. Both Genovese and Mosley got out of their respective cars, and upon seeing Mosley, Genovese started to run. Mosley caught her, and as he stated, stabbed her twice in the back. Because someone had called out from an open window, Mosley returned to his car and moved it, but... I could see that she had gotten up and that she wasn't dead. Since he did not think the person that called would come down to help Genovese, regardless of the fact that she had screamed, he came back and looked for her in the Long Island Railroad Station. Not finding her there, Mosley looked in some nearby apartment buildings where he found her in a hallway. As he testified, As soon as she saw me, she started screaming, so I stabbed her a few other times to stop her from screaming, and I stabbed her once in the neck. She only moaned after that. During the commission of this brutal attack, Mosley could hear that he awakened residents of the apartment building. He heard a door open at least twice, maybe three times. But when he looked up, 
there was nobody up there. Since he didn't feel that these people were coming down the stairs anyway, he decided to rape Genevieve. He removed her undergarments, and upon discovering that she was menstruating, took the knife and stuck it in her vaginal tract and would have pulled the knife straight up, but the bone stopped me in being able to do that. Thereafter, Mosley attempted to rape her, but could not because of impotence. He nevertheless had an orgasm. What a disgusting pig. Yeah, that's pretty awful. Although it wasn't noted in this court's retelling of Mosley's testimony from the trial, Mosley stabbed Kitty in the chest and stomach repeatedly. Her hands were also cut up from trying to defend herself from his attack. When he was done brutalizing her, Mosley stole $49 and ran off into the night. Yeah, he also took some cosmetics. Yeah, which I don't... Is that a trophy thing, or did he like to play dress-up? I don't know. I don't know either. Mosley would run back to his car, head home, and return to the bed he shared with his wife, sleeping under the same roof as his three children like nothing had ever happened, as Kitty lay dying in the indoor stoop of her building while her girlfriend Mary was asleep upstairs, soon to be woken up by the police to the worst news they could give her. The two attacks spanned approximately half an hour. Sophia Farrar, a neighbor and close friend of Kitty's, found her not long after the second attack and held Kitty in her arms, whispering, help is on the way, until an ambulance arrived. One of Kitty's brothers spearheaded a documentary titled The Witness about his sister's death, and Sophia was interviewed, saying, I only hope she knew it was me, that she wasn't alone. The ambulance came around four in the morning. Kitty Genovese died in it on the way to Queen's Hospital. As Mosley was stabbing Kitty's chest, his knife punctured Kitty's lung and she died from asphyxiation. That is on my top 10 list of ways not to die. It's the same as suffocating, but without a pillow over your face. The lung collapses inside the thoracic cavity. So when air comes in, it's just sitting in that cavity and not in the lungs. Then the lungs can't process the oxygen. So oxygen isn't going to the organs that need it to function and survive, you know, like the brain. It's not a quick death. It takes minutes, not seconds, and those minutes feel like hours. Initially, there's panic. The creator built in a major alarm system so we would freak the f*** out any time we're not able to breathe. He wanted us to know we needed to do something about that right now. But the brain gets all mad when it doesn't have oxygen and the person gets disoriented, eventually losing consciousness, and then everything starts shutting down. Additionally, although the cause of death was listed as asphyxi asphyxiation, say that word 10 times fast, due to bilateral pneumothorax, meaning both lungs were involved, there was also a tremendous amount of blood loss. Sophia said that the entire floor of that entryway was flooded with Kitty's blood. So Kitty's vital organs, including her brain, wouldn't be receiving oxygen for long, even if her lungs hadn't been punctured, because blood is like the FedEx of the human innards, transporting oxygen and nutrients to all the body cells. After Kitty's murder, the police investigation focused on the most logical suspect. J just kidding. Instead, police questioned Mary Ann, Kitty's girlfriend, and later two homicide detectives interrogated her for six hours, focusing not on who actually murdered Kitty, but instead on their romantic relationship. The questioning was the same for the couple's neighbors. Not who might have stabbed, robbed, attempted to rape, and murdered Kitty. They wanted to get to the bottom of the case of Kitty and Mary Ann's intimacy. Initially, police even considered Mary Ann a suspect. It's unfreaking believable when you had some witnesses that saw her out there with a man or saw a woman and a man out there at this time right before she died. It makes no sense to me why they would be looking at this woman other than law enforcement in that era was focused on anybody that's different 
then these clean-cut white young men must be evil so ridiculous. Yeah, it was basically a modern-day witch hunt, and it's just awful. Had it not been for some quick thinking by another New Yorker and Mosley's bad luck, there very well may have been several more murders after Kitty's. But fortunately, only six days after the attack on Kitty, Raul Cleary became suspicious when he saw Mosley removing a television from a neighbor's house. Cleary questioned Mosley, but he claimed to be a mover working for the homeowner. Cleary wasn't buying it. So he checked with another neighbor, Jack Brown, who confirmed that the homeowners weren't moving. Cleary called the police. The next part is my favorite part of this whole incident. While Cleary is calling the police, Jack Brown disables Mosley's car to make sure he's still there when the police arrive. That's the kind of neighbor I want. If I got to have neighbors, you know, I don't like people, but if I got to have neighbors, this Jack Brown guy, sharp, sharp character. Yeah, not all heroes wear capes. Fortunately, a detective recalled that witnesses to Kitty's murder reported seeing a white car similar to Mosley's around the crime scene. During questioning for this television robbery, Mosley just admitted to murdering Kitty. But that wasn't all. He told police he had also murdered two other women. Annie Mae Johnson, who had been shot and burned to death in her apartment in South Ozone Park a few weeks earlier, and 15-year-old Barbara Kralik, who had been killed in her parents' Springfield Gardens home the previous July. He told detectives that he had driven around late at night seeking victims and had killed those three women, raped eight, and committed 30 or 40 burglaries. Well, isn't he just a delightful character? Mosley told his interrogators that he had an uncontrollable urge to kill. He also told them that he went after women because they offered less resistance and were easier to kill. So at this point, I'm wondering why the police didn't ask him if it was not Kitty's girlfriend that was behind all this. I mean, yeah, maybe it was like a uh, murder for hire kind of thing. Idiots. Yeah, pretty much. On March 27th, two weeks after Kitty's murder, the New York Times would run the story that made this case infamous. Instead of Kitty Genovese being lost in the statistics of the other 635 people murdered in New York City in 1964, her death became synonymous with her neighbor's responses or lack thereof. The Times' respected metropolitan editor, A.M. Rosenthal, would go on to write a book titled 38 Witnesses, The Kitty Genovese Case. The narrative, artfully crafted by the Times and relayed in further detail in the book, can be distilled into a single line that was attributed to one of Kitty's neighbors, who supposedly told the police, quote, I didn't want to get involved. This became the mantra, and the whole story became about these neighbors. The tale was told as if Kitty was stabbed to death in the middle of a town square while her neighbors intently watched with ambivalence toward her life, not even bothering to call the police. But that was not really what happened. No, apparently the New York Times has been fake news for almost a decade now, uh, as it's been disproven most of this story. And the fact that this Abe dude, the whatever journalist, editor, whatever, he was stuck to this story because when it went out, and of course it sold newspapers, so yay, that's good. So we'll just add a little bit of flavor into it. But then as it started to take on this whole life in academia, and he wrote this book, then he didn't want to backtrack any of it, citing that, oh, look what this has done, created all these sociological studies and and this and that and the other. It's a great thing. Well, it's maybe, but it's based on a total flat out lie. I'm not very good at math, but 1964 to 2023, that's more than a decade, right? I thought I said almost a century. You said decade, but oh, okay. This yeah. is this is like this is like the time in the Colonial Parkways one where I said that that one poor lady was three three hundred and fifty six, which she was definitely not. Right. Yeah, no, I, uh, my mind said century, century, yeah. but I guess it didn't make it to my tongue quite right. And that yeah. happens quite right. a bit. That's okay. I can't talk today, so I, I'm not judging. I just wanted to clarify that. 
And, and you raise a good point, right? As the years have passed by, many journalists, researchers, investigators, and interested people have questioned the time's telling of Kitty's already tragic enough death. If you pull up the story now on the New York Times website, you'll find an editor's note dated October 12th, 2016, that says, Later reporting by the Times and others has called into question significant elements of this account. Indeed. Starting in 2004, one of Kitty's brothers, Bill Genovese, spent over a decade, an actual decade, not a century, trying to understand how and why his sister died. Maybe even more importantly, something that gets lost in the Times story, he also wanted to understand who Kitty was. This is all detailed in the documentary The Witness, I had mentioned it earlier. Bill's initial understanding of the murder came from the story in the Times. And unlike that front-page story claimed, there weren't 38 eyewitnesses to Kitty's murder, which happened first outside and then inside the building in its entryway. Although there may have been many more ear witnesses, only a few people probably saw Mosley attack Kitty, and the one, one of them intervened, yelling at Mosley and scaring him away. At least two neighbors claim to have called the cops, although the police phone logs have no record of those calls. Of course they don't, but these were handwritten in actual notebooks back in this time, so it's only as good as the record keepers and the record keeper record keeping system. And don't forget Kitty's neighbor and friend, Sophia, who ran out to help her, holding Kitty and comforting her as she died. But Sophia's actions and compassion didn't conform with the Times' portrait of an urban indifference. It didn't fit the story's narrative, so there's simply no mention of Sophia in the story at all. Remember, A.M. Rosenthal, who was the editor at the New York Times when Kitty was murdered and helped shape the narrative? In the documentary, Bill talks to him as well. And to Bob's point, right, in the documentary, Bill asks him, where'd the number 38 come from? And Rosenthal, who's since died, responded with a sardonic laugh. And he goes on to say, quote, I can't swear to God that there were 38 people. Some people say there were more. Some people say there were less. As he casually flipped his hand. Then he goes on, what was true? People all over the world were affected by it. Did it do anything? You bet your eye it did something. And I'm glad it did. Something that comes through the documentary is how impossible it is to get to the truth about who heard what and how they reacted. Did Kitty's neighbors really call the police? Or... Is that what they say so that they can live with themselves this many years after the fact? Who knows? But there's little doubt that the Times saw an opportunity to create a compelling narrative and to create a story that would sell papers, and they ran with it. Yeah, I don't buy that the neighbors are just trying to make themselves not seem uncaring because in the conversations with many different neighbors, a lot of them had no idea this is what was being said about them until they saw the New York Times article and were like, no, that's what happened. For instance, the one guy that he didn't know exactly what was going on, but he saw a, a man, it appeared to be a man and a woman, and the man was, you know, arguing with or whatever, uh, approaching this woman, and he hollered it at the dude, and the dude ran away. So to him, the issue's over, the incident's over. You know, the guy went away, that's that. And like you said, there were others that said, I absolutely called the police. There were many still that maybe heard a noise, and by the time they went to look, there was nothing to see because in this course of this multiple attacks, the one attack being out basically on the street, and then I believe it was the second attack, is around the other side, the back side, the complete opposite side of this building. So the, the people on the street that may have saw the first one, by the time they look out, there's nobody left out there. Kitty's not there. He's taken off. 
Now, a second attack occurs on another side of the building, presumably on an alley or street back there. Mm-hmm. So I don't buy that uh, that they were all just making stuff up. There were just so many different parts to so many different twists on. It's not like they were all standing, looking out their windows, watching this and, and making popcorn. I believe the number was actually when the guy was investigating, trying to figure this out, it was something like he found 42 people that were spoken to by police. Not that they were witnesses, but 42 people that were spoken to by police. Some absolutely didn't have a clue that anything happened. And like I said, some actually called the police. One yelled out. Some heard something, went, look, there was nothing there. And I guess they were all counted in this article as people who watched it and did nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you raise a good point that it is hard to convey through audio, but just to kind of give the listeners a, a better sort of mental picture of, of the two attacks. It it would have basically been impossible for anybody who was in a position to view the first attack that occurred outside to then also view the second attack, which occurred at the opposite end of the building, like you mentioned, and inside. Um, it, it just wasn't possible. So to the people who might have seen something in the first attack, uh, once this, this moved to this other place inside the building, um, it, it would be logical or reasonable for them to think that this has just it's it's done and it's over and it's no longer an issue. Right. And and by the attacker's own explanation of the events, that second time she was in the entryway, she was screaming, he stabbed her in the neck and all she did was moan after that. So it's not as though she was screaming in this stairwell entryway thing where all the neighbors could hear. At that point, there was probably nothing to hear. Mm. So I, it doesn't seem like it was 30 minutes of a woman screaming and being murdered on on the stage of a New York City street. Mm, yeah. Turning away from the media's take on this case, let's talk about what happened to Mosley. He pleaded not guilty, and his trial began on June 8, 1964. The strategy was an insanity defense. Two defense experts testified that Mosley didn't know right from wrong. He testified on his own behalf, as we shared earlier, uh, and owned the horrifying details of his crimes, saying he had no remorse for what he had done. The jury didn't buy it, and they convicted him of murder. On June 15th, the case moved into the penalty phase, and the jury needed to determine whether he should receive a death sentence. In his final argument to the jury, Mosley's attorney shockingly told the jury, with Mosley present, I didn't try this case involving Kitty Genovese objectively, calmly, just as a lawyer defending a client, because I knew Kitty Genovese and represented her for years. The judge immediately interrupted the attorney and forbade him from continuing with this line of argument. And this was a big deal because it seemed the attorney was suddenly stating he had a conflict of interest, one that should have been disclosed long before this point and would never be put in front of a jury either way. Nonetheless, the jury recommended the death penalty for Mosley, and on July 6, 1964, the court sentenced Mosley to die. Mosley appealed, and on June 1, 1967, so roughly three years later, the Court of Appeals affirmed the conviction but set aside the sentence because the trial court had barred the defense from recalling two psychiatrists to testify on Mosley's behalf during the sentencing phase. On remand, Mosley was automatically sentenced to life imprisonment in compliance with the Court of Appeals directive and New York law at the time. This guy should have been escorted directly to the electric chair. And let's let's soak it down before we put him in it this time. You lawyer people talk about mitigating and aggravating factors. There's nothing mitigating about this bag of shit at all. The way he killed her, the way he went back to her repeatedly, the things he did to her, 
And then he confesses to all these other crimes in the dozens. There's nothing good about this man. He should have gotten just buried under the jail immediately. And then to commute that somehow or remand that to a life sentence, whatever, which I'm sure gives him the chance of parole. So please tell me, did he spend the rest of his life in prison or, or what? Not exactly, which is a pretty typical lawyer answer, right? It depends. I'm giving you not exactly. Right. A year after he had his death sentence vacated and received life instead, Mosley escaped from prison. In 1968, during a visit to a hospital in Buffalo for treatment of a self-inflicted injury at Attica, Mosley overpowered a guard, took his gun, and fled. Now, what do you think he did when he was in Buffalo? You think he just went and had some wings? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, he No, he, he would go on to terrorize Buffalo during several days on the loose, taking five hostages and raping a woman before finally being captured by the FBI. He was also part of the Attica Uprising in 1971. But I don't want you to worry too much, and I know you're probably, you're really waiting for me to hit this part. Amongst all of the escaping, raping, and generally abhorrent behavior, Mosley managed to find the time to earn himself a bachelor's degree from Niagara University in 1977. Do you know what he majored in? I can't even imagine. Sociology. Oh, brilliant. Now, 196, or excuse me, 1977 was a big year for Mosley. In addition to earning his bachelor's degree, his writing was published in the New York Times. They just keep on giving. It was an op-ed Mosley wrote titled, Today, I'm a man who wants to be an asset. Well, that's good. Being an asset in an electric chair, it makes absolutely no sense. And why someone would give this man a platform to write an op-ed in the New York Times. And that was part of the problem that some people have said, why didn't other newspapers or other journalists investigate this story or challenge this story? What they, a lot of them have said is on one hand, the Times was reporting it and they had covered everything. That was the angle. It was a, a done deal. So they didn't pursue it any further. Others have said they sort of sniffed out that something wasn't right about this New York Times story. But as journalists, there was no way they were going to write something contradicting and calling out the Times because it was the Times and you would basically be ending your career. You know, that was the big time. So they wouldn't go against him. Yeah. Many suspected that Mosley was using the op-ed as an opportunity to begin garnering favor for his upcoming parole hearings, which, given that he seemed pretty clearly to be a narcissist, makes a lot of sense. For example, during a 2013 parole interview, Mosley said, quote, I know that I did some terrible things, and I've tried very hard to atone for those things in prison. I think almost 50 years of paying for those crimes is enough. Absolutely not. That bag of shit needs to stay in for life since they didn't fry him in the first place. Well, that's how the parole board saw it, too. Although Mosley applied for parole 18 times, he was denied every single time. As a result, he spent nearly 52 years in the New York State prison system. He died in March 2016 at the Clinton Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison in Dannemora, New York. According to a spokesman for New York prison system, he was described as one of the longest serving prisoners in their system. Over the years, Mosley changed his account of what happened to Kitty that night many times downplaying his involvement, blaming it on road rage, claiming she hurled racial slurs at him, and limiting his involvement as simply the getaway driver for the real killer, claiming that he did it maybe because gangsters forced him to as a contract killing. As a more recent Times article put it, Mosley was, quote, a psychopathic serial killer and necrophiliac. The man who prosecuted Mosley at his trial described him with one word, ice. I think he's full of crap and all those different stories that he came up with. And his first one was probably the most accurate one. My guess is that after reading and studying sociology and psychology, it's not that he felt bad. 
but he figured out that he should feel bad or that the world would expect him to feel bad or have a different story, that, that this was really not acceptable and his only shot at getting out was to spin it somehow, some way. But he tried to spin it multiple different ways and none of it freaking worked. So I'm done with this dude. Mm, I couldn't agree more. The Times' startling narrative about 38 neighbors looking on while a young woman screamed for help as she was savagely beaten, stabbed, raped, and robbed understandably captivated the nation's attention. It shocked people. It was terrifying. What happened to Kitty can't be understated. It was absolutely awful. Kitty's mom had a stroke the year after her murder, and her dad died of a stroke when he was only 59 years old. It's unfathomable the toll knowing their daughter died this way must have taken on them. The Times told a story around Kitty's murder that's appalling. Many sources argue that this case propelled the creation of 911. It unquestionably propelled an entire area of psychological research and has been the subject of many books, TV shows, movies, and songs. From Perry Mason to Law and Order, the movie Boondock Saints to the Watchmen comic series, even a folk singer and Korean indie rock band have found inspiration for their art from this story. The impact of this front page account can still be felt over a half century later. As impactful as it may be, the Times story is not entirely accurate. It leaves out the man who shouted and scared off mostly. It omits Sophia holding her friend in her arms as life drained from Kitty's body. Some neighbors said they called the police, but those details weren't included. They didn't fit the shocking narrative of 38 people watching their neighbor be murdered because they didn't want to get involved. But more than that, what the time story misses is the most important aspect of what took place that Friday the 13th. It misses Kitty. The Times focused instead on Kitty's neighbors and missed the forest for the trees. Kitty was a young woman with a great sense of humor, a hard worker with siblings and parents who loved her dearly. Her classmates from high school described her as self-assured beyond her years with a sunny disposition. She worked two jobs and excelled at her work. She loved folk music and her girlfriend, Mary Ann. She was working hard to save money, planning to open her own restaurant. And that was Kitty. And that's what the Times missed out on. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.